We at Marymount want to, want to scan you. All of you, your body, your face, your emotions, your laughter, your tears, your climaxing, your happiness, your depressions, your fears, longings. We want to sample you. We want to preserve you and we want to own this, this, this thing, this thing called Robin Wright. And what will you do with this thing that you call Robin Wright? We'll do all the things that your Robin Wright wouldn't do. This is a clip from the 2013 sci-fi movie The Congress, starring Robin Wright, who plays a fictional version of herself, a fickle and ageing actress out of work. The plot surrounds a film studio who tries to buy her digital likeness in order to use her in any film that they choose. It sounds a little far-fetched, but this concept isn't entirely science fiction. In November 2019, a production company, Magic City Films, acquired the rights from James Dean's estate to digitally recreate the legendary actor for a brand new film, 65 years on from his death in 1955. Through a combination of CGI and artificial footage, this kind of technology does actually exist. And we've even seen some recent examples in cinema, like 2016's Rogue One, where Grand Moff Tarkin, the iconic Star Wars villain, originally played by the late Peter Cushing, graced the silver screen once more. Similar techniques were also used to recreate a young Princess Leia. This sort of tech has mostly been limited to Hollywood and visual effects studios. That was until the rise of deep fakes. Welcome to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson, and in this episode we'll be talking about the deceptive and problematic issues around synthetic media, who are the real victims of the deep fake trend, and how can we tell when the media we consume is deliberately trying to mislead us. And just a warning, this episode will discuss explicit topics. Whether you're familiar with the term deepfake or not, you've probably seen some amusing examples of them in your social media feed, like videos where Nicolas Cage has been face-swapped into a variety of movies that he's never actually appeared in. But the origin of deepfake, a portmanteau of deep learning and fake, was a bit more nefarious when it surfaced in 2017. We saw someone on Reddit who had the username deepfakes Um, posting these videos to a forum where people were photoshopping women's faces onto porn performers' bodies. I'm Samantha Cole. I'm a senior reporter at Motherboard, Vice's science and technology outlet. But his were videos, and they were created with an algorithm that pasted someone's face onto someone else's body in a moving video. Um, And they looked pretty real. Uh, They were, you know, short gifts at that time, so they were pretty um, low quality, but they were definitely something we'd never seen before. Um, so we reached out to him and we said, you know, uh, what are you what are you making here? 
Um, and he told us he wasn't a programmer. He was just, uh, he was just someone who had an interest in machine learning and was practicing a hobby. Um, that's kind of how it started. Uh, it all kind of snowballed from there um, and became what we see today. Samantha was one of the first people to report on deep fakes. And at the time, she knew that this technology was impressive, but had no idea it would have such a huge impact. Um, I don't think we realized that it would be the scale that it has become today. I don't, at least I didn't um, think that it would become this much, but we definitely knew it was something big. Um, it was, the big part of that was it was open source software. It was something that he was actively like troubleshooting with other people and trying to make it better and make the software better. Um, he wasn't taking a ton of credit for like discovering something new and amazing. It was just kind of like a hobby. Um, he said he, he didn't think I asked him about like consent issues and things like that. And he didn't really think that, uh, what he was making was a problem or, you know, he kind of justified it as technology can be used for good and bad. Um, and it's up to people to decide how they're going to use it. This is something that a lot of technologists say. If I don't make it, someone else will. But of course, creators can sometimes regret what they've released into the world. The term when it was initially coined uh, in November of 2017 by the initial Reddit user, it exclusively referred to using face swapping capabilities to put celebrities' faces in pornographic footage. So, hi, my name's Henry uh, Ida. I'm the head of communications and research analysis at DeepTrace. And since then, it's evolved to both retrospectively include kind of older technologies that were around before that initial activity on Reddit, and also new capabilities which involve much broader synthetic generative qualities um, that have happened in the years in the, in the year or, or two since. Deep Trace is a company working on both monitoring and detecting deep fakes, which have evolved to become more than simple GIFs or videos. People can now face swap celebrities or even put themselves into movies. But this has also led to some confusion in defining a deep fake. The way it's evolved, um, the way that the kind of uh, communities surrounding deep fakes have changed and the quality of the deep fakes being created um, has changed is, is dramatic. Defining deepfakes is very difficult because there's a lot of disagreement as to uh, what should be classified as a deepfake and what isn't. Um, most of those cases are synthetic media. The question is, what else is there about a deepfake um, that makes it a deepfake as opposed to just synthetic media? When we say synthetic media, we're talking about content that has been partially or fully created by an artificial intelligence system, as opposed to deepfake which is a very specific form of synthetic media. There's a danger in this regard insofar as if we look at the history of the term fake news, we really don't want deep fakes falling into the same sort of uh, hijacking scenario as that, where people start using it in a weaponized way and kind of uh, devalue its meaning. But we frequently see kind of, you know, um, more kind of commercial uses of synthetic media or even non-AI synthetic media being referred to as deepfakes. So it's, um, it's, a, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult one to kind of pin down exactly. And we'll have more on that right after this short break. Imagine this for a second. One man with total control of billions of people's stolen data 
all their secrets, their lives, their futures. I owe it all to Spectre. Spectre showed me that whoever controls the data controls the future. This video looks a lot like Mark Zuckerberg and sounds somewhat similar, except it isn't. Technically, it's not a deep fake either. It was made by Kenny AI for the artist Bill Posters. We reached out to Kenny AI and the co-founder Omar Benami responded to us via email. He explained that their product isn't a deep fake, but video dialogue replacement or VDR. So rather than face swapping, Kenny AI takes two videos and replaces a dialogue from one into the other. Before the Reddit user Deepfakes released their code, it was pretty difficult to create realistic face swap videos. But the game changer for everyday use of this technology was artificial intelligence. Back in 2014, generative neural networks were developed, which are a specific type of deep learning algorithm. The generative neural network is an AI that enables a computer to organize and generate data. This led to the creation of Generative Adversarial Networks, or GAN, the algorithm regularly used to create deep fakes. Here's Henry. So what happens is you have one network doing the generation and you have one uh, network uh, kind of doing detection or discrimination. And what happens is this, there's this back and forth, back and forth. The generator generates, the discriminator says, no, that's not real. It goes back to the generator. And through this iterative process, the generator gets better at creating fakes up until the point where the discriminator cannot tell the distinction between the synthetically generated image, video, uh, audio track and the, the original um, training data that it's been fed. And at that point, you have, um, you have an output which is um, deemed by that network at least to be of a sufficient quality to be uh, comparable to that initial data set. You may have used face swap filters on social media or a dedicated face swap app. You can superimpose your friend's face onto your own, for example. It's a bit of fun, but it's still pretty glitchy. But by using open source software from academics, the Reddit user Deepfakes was able to create a sophisticated face swap code, implementing hundreds and sometimes thousands of photos to map a person's face onto a different body. Although their code still took a decent amount of technological know-how, it made it much easier to create realistic videos. Eventually, another Reddit user created FakeApp, putting this capability in the hands of everyday people. There are even online marketplaces where you can purchase custom-made deepfake videos for as little as 10 US dollars. The monetization of this technology led to the creation of Deep Nude. The app created realistic fake nude images of women. After its launch in 2019, the creator went on a kind of digital press tour, eager to talk about his creation. Motherboard reporter Samantha Cole was one of the few people who spoke with him. She and her team tested the app on different images and even tried it on an image of a man only to find that his pants were replaced with a vulva. Samantha published an article about the app on the morning of June 27th, and by 3pm that afternoon, the Deep Nude website had crashed, only a few days after it had launched. Here's Samantha again. That was another instance where it was just, it was very easy to see that we needed to write about this early and set the tone early because it was going to be 
something that people were going to catch on to very quickly. It was surprising that it went down so fast, um, but it was also a little bit expected because this is just what this is the pattern that we had seen with deep fakes is someone comes up and says, look at our technology. It's so cool. And then they hadn't thought about any of the ramifications, um, how it could actually harm people. And then kind of backpedaled it or shut it down themselves or said, actually, I don't want to be the person to put this into the world, <laughs> which is what he said to us is, you know, I, someone's going to do it and it, I don't want it to be me actually. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's kind of where that impact comes in. And it was definitely, it was wild to see how quickly that happened. People were so outraged by the deep nude app that the creator shut it down, but the code had already been uploaded to GitHub and posts began to appear advertising a new and more advanced version of the app. I think it's absolutely critical that we you know, as we start to prepare for future harms that might be more mice widespread in other spaces that we don't forget that essentially at the moment this is a gender-based violence problem. I think it's 96% of deepfakes are non-consensual sexual images. And, you know, the, the cases where, where it definitely was either a deepfake or, or a related type of face swap are cases like Ran Rayoub, the, the Indian journalist, where, um, you know, this expanded the, the ways in which um, people could attack someone who's been prominent and, and highly effective in investigating uh, right-wing extremism in, in India. I'm Sam Gregory, and I'm the program director of the human rights organization Witness. The other thing that um, focusing on, on gender-based violence reminds us is that it doesn't require perfection in that space, right? So often people focus on, is this deepfake perfect, right? You know, would it fool people? Well, well, with gender-based violence online and image-based abuse, that it doesn't need to fool people, right? Um, you know, it's often it's doing it because its intention is to humiliate, to increase the threats and the um, online harassment towards uh, a woman public figure or a, a private individual, and and it doesn't necessarily require it be perfect. Witness is a human rights network that focuses on enabling people to use technology and video to advocate for human rights and monitor and report abuses. The organisation began almost 25 years ago when a bystander took a video of police violence in the United States. Witness now works with global communities to continue to record and share phone videos of everything from war crimes to abuses of land rights. Omar Benami from Canny AI told us via email that the release of deepfakes as an open source project has led to two unfortunate outcomes. First, it was used maliciously from the get-go. And second, it created the feeling that anyone can very easily create any deepfake video they want and can make anyone say anything. And we'll be back after this short break. According to a report published by Deep Trace, there are approximately 14,700 deepfake videos online as of September 2019. Henry Itis says the aim of the report was to produce a tangible, data-driven resource for people to use, and there were some pretty unsettling statistics. Only 4% of videos were non-pornographic, 
and the remaining 96% were all non-consensual videos of women. One of the key findings in our report was that deepfake pornography is very, very prevalent. Um, and it's just really important to recognize that the main victim of deepfakes at the moment is, is women. Um, and for your listener, you know, I think it's important for them to acknowledge and or to, to be aware that, you know, um, your mother, your daughter, your sister, your girlfriend, uh, your partner could be targeted by these technologies um, and have images taken from their Instagram or their Facebook or places like this. And those images could be used to create synthetic pornography of them, which could be highly damaging to their you know, their dignity and their well-being. Um, and on that basis, I just think it's important to say, you know, yes, don't panic, prepare. But at the same time, you know, the main people who are suffering at the moment because of because of deepfakes are women. And, you know, that's a problem that does need addressing now. Being a woman online is a whole different experience than being a man online. Again, this is Samantha Cole. Just from researching people who are targets of this and talking to a few of the different victims who have been targeted by uh, malicious deepfakes, the impact on the individual is huge. It's, it's no different than if you actually saw yourself in a sex tape spread around the internet. You really have to look at the individual and kind of say, this is, this is really hurting people. Um, I think just the impact in general, like on our society, I mean, it's, it's been a problem forever. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's misogyny that we, we have to deal with um, on a much bigger scale. The difficulty with these videos is that there's no easy way to discover who actually made them. And as Henry Eider explains, there's also the issue of the type of people who frequent the platforms where deep fake pornography is being shared. You know, if I were a betting man, yes, I would say that I think it's to do with the kinds of spaces online uh, that deepfakes emerged in and the kinds of individuals who are interested in uh, developing these tools. Uh, 4chan, 8chan, even Reddit, it's a lot better nowadays, but even Reddit to an extent are kind of notorious for very vile misogynistic content. So I think it's a combination of potential factors uh, to do with the male-dominated uh, space of computer sciences um, and of these online forums. Um, but ultimately, I, I don't have any hard evidence to back that up. That's more my suspicion as opposed to uh, an observable, uh, scientifically demonstrable kind of conclusion. But yes, I mean, I put it this way. I, I, as So far, I have not seen an explicitly female account on any of these forums discussing deepfake pornography or requesting deepfake pornography of male celebrities. Um, I know that since our report came out and since we collected that data, there have been a few deepfake pornography videos featuring men. Even if you're seeing it, even if you think you're hearing it, there's no guarantee that that's what the person originally said. That was Professor Alan Black on a news report for CBS Pittsburgh. And he highlights a core problem with deepfake videos, their deceptive nature. While the quality of deepfakes still varies, and many of the videos aren't entirely convincing, the technology is steadily improving, which means that we are all susceptible to being misled, and we should be more careful about what we share online. Here's Sam Gregory from Witness. 
we've been saying uh, don't panic but prepare and what we mean by that is um, there's a lot of rhetoric around deep fakes that suggests it's you know the end of truth we can't believe anything we see um, and that's profoundly damaging right we're actually not surrounded by deep fakes we um, we're surrounded by other forms of misinformation but it's not true that everything around us is not believable anymore and there's an opportunity to prepare better than we have for previous waves of misinformation and preparing better for us means you know what do we actually want from the platforms? What do we actually want from governments? Um, and how do we make sure that that um, set of solutions is guided globally? Um, and the reason I say guided globally is like many of the responses to um, previous technology-enabled problems, you know, they're basically decided by Silicon Valley, Washington, and Brussels, um, and maybe Canberra a little bit, but uh, certainly not by Brazil or South Africa or Malaysia or, um, you know, much of the global south. And so, you know, we need to be listening really closely to what people in the global south want from this because they've often faced the brunt of misinformation. In the US, social media platforms are protected by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Back in 1996, lawmakers tried to create an anti-porn provision for the internet. Obviously, it didn't work. But a provision remained, Section 230C, the Good Samaritan provision which offers protection for providers in regards to the blocking and screening of offensive material. Um, and it's been interpreted really broadly to say that if you underfilter content, um, if you don't engage in any self-monitoring at all, even if you encourage abuse, that you're immune from liability for user-generated content. And so the question is, in a world, and here we are 25 years later, um, the internet, we've got dominant pl players. Uh, it's not, the internet is not in its infancy. And is it time to reassess it? And I think the answer is yes, uh, that we should uh, condition the immunity. It shouldn't be a free pass. That was Professor Danielle Citrin at the US House Intelligence Committee hearing about deep fake and AI technology. And Section 230 is part of the reason why it's so difficult for someone to get a deep fake video of themselves removed from a hosting platform. The platforms are not liable for the content hosted on their sites, but some media organisations are trying to help those affected. Here's Samantha Cole again. And it just, it, the average person gets ignored. Um, it's a huge problem in revenge porn where people kind of say, you know, this isn't me, this isn't me in this video, or they would be fakes, or even before then they'll say, we didn't give our consent to be on this platform. And then the platforms don't react to that, but they react to me hitting them up because... I'm going to write something about it. So yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's, they, they reacted quickly with deep fakes because it was so new and like we were the first ones to kind of find it and point it out. But um, just in general, it's very it's a very slow process to go through like the reporting process on a place like Facebook or Twitter or even Reddit um, to get some of this stuff taken down. It's a lot of the time the case that we are the first to see something like this um, and then when we flag it to, you know, a press line or when we contact the platform about it, they act quickly at that point. But I mean, the, I would say that then they were acting very quickly because they were getting media attention and they didn't want bad press. The issue of liability is something that lawmakers and victims of non-consensual deepfake videos are grappling with. Not only do social media platforms have immunity, but they often don't have definitive classification for these videos. 
The malicious videos are images of people's faces swapped onto porn performers' bodies, so technically it's not the people themselves. Most platforms have decided to call these types of deep fakes revenge porn because they're created without consent. For sure, that's definitely the original use of it. And that's kind of what we saw in the months after reporting on deepfakes and kind of going to a lot of these platforms where it was hosted and saying, hey, what are you going to do about this? Because you have, in some cases, they had non-consensual imagery terms in place already um, and just weren't applying to them to something like this because it was a, a very weird new thing. And a lot of them didn't even, they didn't have like non-consensual porn terms in place at all before. So I think that was really interesting is just kind of making some of these platforms think differently about the things that people posted. Um, just because something Photoshop doesn't mean it's not harmful. Um, just because it's not real doesn't mean it's not harmful. Hi folks, I am here with a very special message. Since that momentous day in 2016, division has coursed through our country as we argue with fantastic passion, vim and vigour about Brexit. My friends, I wish to rise above this divide and endorse my worthy opponent, the Right Honourable Jeremy Corbyn, to be Prime Minister of our United Kingdom. Only he, not I, can make Britain great again. Huzzah! Alas, why should you believe me? Much like Odysseus and his encounter with the Cyclops Polyphemus, I too am nobody. I am a fake bear. A deep fake, to be precise. And as you can see, even I, the Prime Minister, can be affected by them. That was not the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but another deep fake by artist Bill Posters, in collaboration with Future Advocacy. In the US, the Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, is working on programs that can detect deep fakes. They are creating software that finds errors at the edge of a facial image, looking for flaws. Other academics are looking at facial pulses to see if it matches the neck pulse or the blinking pattern of the subject. As Henry Ida told us, the difficulty in finding deep fakes and synthetic videos is that they don't come in one single format. The other challenge is that hosting platforms all have different uploading systems. You know, some videos are horribly compressed. For example, with YouTube's algorithm um, itself, um, it kind of uh, every video you upload is, is compressed. There are images or videos which potentially are going to be more difficult to detect. But the key is about how much training data you have for the algorithm to work with. It's just a question of having enough data and it being familiar with that kind of um, that kind of image or the quality of that, image, so to speak. Um, so in short, it does make things more difficult. And that's why we are training our, our tools on such a large range of different kinds of, of deep fakes and, and synthetic media. Um, but, it, but it's not impossible. Companies and academics working on deep fakes and AI will often use open source software. This makes the development process quicker because it means they have a baseline to work from. Open source software is a big part of the AI community, but this also makes it easier to hack. Here's Sam Gregory. You know, partly that's because of the nature of um, how um, um, how deepfakes and synthetic media and other forgeries develop is, you know, if you can test the detection algorithm, you can improve your forgery. You know, I think there, there's obviously a lot of startups building tools. Um, 
And I think having that innovation in research is pretty critical. It does seem that likely they'll have less access to the, the range of examples of forgeries, both new and emerge, emerging as well as the older types. So it feels like they start at a disadvantage versus the platforms because they have a greater stock of data. Platforms recognise they have a role to play in sharing and detecting this malicious content. Amazon, Microsoft and Facebook have released manipulated images to help researchers build better tools. But social media platforms also have access to much more data than they release. And then the question really becomes, you know, uh, who's that available to? And there's sort of three levels we can imagine of availability of those tools. There's uh, the platforms using it internally themselves to make decisions about, you know, for example, what they label, what they downrank, what they remove. Um, the second level is them making it available to, you know, a certain set of maybe journalists and investigators to, to be able to test media against the platform. And the third is making it available to the broader users to test against. You know, those those of those three, it's clear that they will use them internally. Um, and we need then to ask, you know, well, how transparent are they going to be about that use? What if they get it wrong? How do you appeal that? Um, because we've had problems already of how platforms moderate content in ways that are not very transparent and lead to the loss of, you know, really critical content that, you know, falls between the cracks of their of their algorithms. Uh, I think it's likely they're going to develop tools that are available to, uh, oriented towards journalists and investigators. Um, I, don't, I think it's less likely there'll be tools available for the general public. Another issue is that more people are turning to social media platforms to get their news. And a general lack of media literacy has some people worried that deep fakes and synthetic media will become part of the regular news cycle. So you can't just say, you know, check your local newspaper when when that's um, not a robust source or is now massively under-resourced. Um, and then you hear from journalists that they are like, we don't have the capacity to do this. You know, we worry about being completely overloaded and our judicial system's been completely overloaded because they've barely caught up with the need to do this, um, you know, increased verification of media and the judicial systems are just starting to catch on to the use of video. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a lot of questions about capacity and resourcing and who will be heard in terms of how the solutions are built um, and how those solutions might get weaponized in societies that have less robust uh, rule of law or law. It can be difficult to spot deepfakes or synthetic manipulated videos. As we mentioned earlier, most deepfakes are made using generative adversarial networks, but there are many other methods and they are constantly improving. So there's a need for us to be informed. And more importantly, we have to put pressure on content platforms to be proactive in combating this technology. I'm really sceptical about... Um about telling people that they should be able to spot deepfakes or synthetic media. I think it's unfair. And because of the way that deepfakes and synthetic media develop and the techniques develop, they're unlikely to be useful in, say, a year's time. Um, so, in fact, I actively avoid trying to tell people those tips because I think they set people up for failure. And on the other hand, we can help people think about what technical signals they need to spot a deepfake and then to put that into a broader process of media literacy. And, and that relates to what we could ask platforms to do, right? We should uh, be demanding that platforms provide those technical signals that they might be able to detect to people consuming their media, right? So if they detect something that is an invisible to the eye manipulation, how do they tell users that that exists? How do they give them information to say, you might want to double check something here, or you might want to see who sent this to you, or you might want to find another source, or hey, here's the original video from which this video appears to be adapted. 
Uh, those are all things that the platforms can help us with. Um, and then we should then plug that into helping ordinary people have better media literacy about where things come from, the sources, um, the provenance, the additional kind of information. But I, I don't think we can just say to people, you know, look, look, try and spot deep fakes. We're setting them up for failure. Governments also have an important role in fighting the misuse of deep fake technology. But because it's always improving, they're struggling to keep up. There are both um, deep fake specific laws being proposed, as well as another set of laws that we really need to understand in the same relationship, which are laws around so-called fake news. So on the deep fake side, you know, most of the laws so far are ones that are uh, trying to address the, the non-consensual sexual images or often very specific election contexts. I also think we generally don't understand the impact of deep fakes thoroughly enough. You know, we are, we're preparing for them, but we haven't seen them at scale in politics. So writing legislation for a problem you don't know well is not a great idea. Um, the other thing that we have to bear in mind is that there are all these fake news laws being launched. So Singapore has new legislation that gives the government the ability to say whether something on a social media platform is true or false. And in the United States, lawmakers are looking at the definition of deceptive content versus something that's more harmless that would determine where the law might step in. Digital media is already so intertwined in our lives that there's going to be more and more overlap between positive content and harmful content. We are going to be living in an increasingly synthetic world. Um, This technology will only continue to proliferate and saturate our day-to-day lives. There are going to be many, many cases of synthetic media which are not explicitly bad. And on this basis, um, organizations, companies are gonna need to make judgment calls as to what is and is not acceptable uses of synthetic media. It's not the case that it's gonna be viable that we can just put out a blanket ban on synthetic media, and we wouldn't want to because of the, the other positive kinds of use cases that do exist. So it's important to recognize that, yeah, not all synthetic media are deep fakes and to kind of to kind of say, oh, well, you know, we'll just ban all deep fakes or we'll just kind of uh, remove all, de- all, all synthetic media from a platform. A, you have to, again, try and define what a deep fake is in that context. And B, you've got to make a value judgment as to what kinds of synthetic media are permissible and what aren't. This episode of Moonshot was hosted and mixed by me, Christopher Lawson. Production and scripting by Jasmine Mee Lee. Additional production from James Parkinson. Our theme music is by the talented Breakmaster Cylinder. And our artwork comes from Andrew Millist. Remember, you can find out more about the show at our website, moonshot.audio. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter, at MoonshotPod. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>